0: everyone. Welcome to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, Senior Director at CFGI. And this is the program where we dig deeper to understand what really matters most in business. So whether you're negotiating a mega deal, buying a new car, or just trying to get your kids to eat your, their vegetables, the reality of the matter is that every day we are in some form of negotiation. And today we're going to be going behind the numbers with Chris Voss, who is a former FBI negotiator, CEO of the Black Swan Group, and author of the best-selling book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. Chris, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, Dave. Happy to be on. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, it's my pleasure. So I I gave the audience the uh, 30-second overview. Do you want to just tell us a little bit more about yourself and Black Swan, and then we'll dive into the topic at hand?
1: Yeah, Black Swan Group, uh, the book Never Split the Difference, this is all based on uh, the emotional intelligence of hostage negotiators. And as it turns out, that stuff applies across the board. So I was the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator and taught negotiation, taught these techniques in a number of business schools across the country, you know, for proof of concept. And uh, uh, people that learn how to negotiate like this are just killing it, just doing a great job with people. As opposed to against them. The real key is to negotiate with people, not not against them.
0: Yeah, and we're going to unpack a lot of that. And uh, unfortunately, we only have a limited amount of time, but I've got, as I mentioned to you before we went on here, about three hours worth of material to talk about. But let's take it from the top. Um, obviously, in hostage negotiation, you, you can't split the difference. It, it doesn't work if you say you have half the hostages and we'll, yeah. we'll take the other ones. Um, but in our day to day life, for most civilians, when we're in negotiations, at some point, whether we're fatigued or just naive, we get to that spot where we say, why don't we just meet in the middle? Why is splitting the difference a bad idea?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a compromise. Uh, it's a bad uh, what, what makes it a bad idea? Would you compromise your principles? You know, I, I saw a cartoon of an old married couple a long, long time ago that said, why don't we compromise? That way we'll both be unhappy. <laughs> compromise I- is a way to guarantee that you'll be unhappy at, at, at best um you start blending ideas and you just end up with bad outcomes uh the analogy we use in a book all the time is look i got a suit on i don't know whether i should wear brown shoes or black shoes i compromise i wear one black one brown it just it just doesn't work
0: yeah so we're going to dive into how maybe folks who are watching and listening can learn how to not split the difference and one of the ways uh, that we talk about, that you talk about in the book um, is something you call a calibrated no. And in most people's mind for negotiation, they want to get to the yes, they want to get right. an affirmative on some kind of an agreement. But your advice is don't go for the yes first, go for the no. Why is that?
1: Yeah, it's kind of crazy. All right, so yes is the way people who con us manipulate us. Um, you know, it's this nonsense out there called the yes momentum or momentum selling where each yes is a micro-agreement or a tie-down, and you have to say yes to the big yes. Now, that scam has been run so many times on everybody that the minute somebody tries to get us to say yes, you know, we back up. We're like, all right, where's this going? What uh, what, what am I walking myself into? What kind of a trap is here? So the first thing is that trying to get somebody to say yes is actually going to start them to mistrust you right away, not because you're a bad person, but because somebody else conned them. And then the, the crazy thing is, if you just flip the yes and the no, I mean, when you say no, you, you feel safe. You feel protected. Consequently, you're more willing to talk. So it's insane what that two millimeter shift from yes to no can do in terms of your questions.
0: Yeah. And in terms of a practical application, one of the things that I've adopted in my day to day is if I'm calling somebody to, to shift it from the do you have a few minutes to talk, I always say now, is this a bad time? Yeah. And Yeah. It, it's an,
1: and it's an instantaneous difference in response, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and as we were saying before we went on the air here, that it, it, it's akin to a Jedi mind trick. It, it does, that subtle shift does make a tremendous difference.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's shocking. People have actually been in negotiations where somebody was refusing all along to say, do you agree, and they just simply switch it to you disagree. And he said, no, let's, you know, let's go ahead and do it. It's, it's
0: nuts. <laughs> Chris, what's an accusation audit? You talk about accusation audits in the book.
1: Right. All right. So pretend you're an accountant or you are doing inventory. Do an inventory. Do an audit of all the names they might call you, fairly or unfairly, earned by the situation, earned by your predecessors, earned by the titles of people like you, though you're not like those people. You know these are negative thoughts that lurk in the other side's mind every one of them is a vampire and the only way to drive a vampire uh, uh to kill that vi- vampire is to drive a state through its heart simply by calling it out it makes no sense logically but you know there is no logic this is neuroscience and neuroscience tells us that simply identifying negatives diffuses them if not makes them disappear entirely and it's a it's, an, uh, it's, a, it's a methodical approach to destroy negatives in the other side's head, not by denying them, but by simply calling them out.
0: What's a good example that you might share? So if um, for the, the folks who watch and listen to this program are entrepreneurs, business executives, and so forth, a lot of accountants watch the program. So what would be a good example, for example, for an accountant?
1: An accountant would say, like, you know, I'm sure that I appear like somebody who's just a bean counter. It probably look like just a bean counter to you and it probably looks like i don't care about people and it probably doesn't care look like i care about anything other than counting beans i mean and there you go what's the name that they would call you be fearless about identifying it and calling it out.
0: yeah and that's a, a very good subtle shift it brings them to your side of the table
1: the crazy thing is is that ex- that's exactly what it does
0: yeah uh, i guess somewhere in that equation is this construct of tactical empathy is that fair
1: it, 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 that in fact it's part of that equation yeah tactical empathy
0: so how, how do you define tactical empathy for those watching
1: all right so um the old idea of empathy and empathy is not sympathy it's not compassion it's not agreement that's the first start you know i say i've got i got empathy for your situation people say that when they mean to say i have sympathy for it but separate it so uh, understanding the other side situation, being able to articulate it. It's a version of Covey's Seek First to Understand in order to be understood. Demonstrate your understanding. Now, the tactical application is what I talked about earlier. Tactically, we know that 75% of your emotional response is negative. It's, uh, the amygdala in your head is dedicated to negativity, 75% of it. So if that's the biggest issue let's tactically approach that first
0: got it so uh, for the folks i mean you, you had spoken at m a east here in the philadelphia area which is uh, one of the largest corporate finance trade shows and you spoke to a sold out crowd so you're speaking to a bunch of deal makers and I, I imagine and because i haven't been involved in the m a world when you're involved in that kind of a negotiation Trust is paramount, and it's so difficult to try and establish trust when everybody is trying to get their own gains in, in the deal. What's your advice for people who are negotiating in the M&A space, for example, on how to build that rapport and how to build that trust so you can have a more smooth and successful negotiation?
1: Yeah, well, the, the, two, the two hacks are this demonstration of understanding. What does that mean in the M&A space? Call out what the other side's looking at. Say, here's what you're faced with. You're faced with X, Y, Z. You're, you're faced with a lot of people in, in, in this space where we're too busy to get to the deal and it looks like we really don't care about you. Start to articulate what you know that they're thinking. It puts you in resonance with them. It makes them th- say to themselves, wow, here's somebody that, that actually may understand what I'm up against. The second thing is on trust is take out the word trust and put in the word predictability be predictable in your interactions be you know it's as simple as calling when people expect to be called or never let somebody wonder when they're going to hear from you if you've got an ongoing relationship where you're trying to make a deal with somebody schedule the calls in advance never let them wonder when they're going to hear from you next you instantly become more predictable therefore more trustworthy
0: yeah good stuff a lot of times in these negotiations, m and or otherwise, there are decision makers who aren't in the room, Chris. And you, you warn us about the folks who aren't in the room and how they can damage a negotiation. And I know I've been blindsided by it before in the past. How can we, in our day-to-day, understand who are the real key decision makers who may not be sitting at that table with us?
1: Yeah, you know, and let's and, and not a lot of times, all the time. And they're decision makers and they're deal killers. And the deal killers are at least as important as the decision decision makers because they kill half the deals the decision makers go along with. So what do you do about it? They're going to be the implementers, the people that are in charge of implementing the deal. They're also going to be the people who think they should be part of the bargaining, the negotiating process, and are not at the table. By and large, if whoever's on the other side has internal corporate counsel, those people are the deal killers. Internal corporate counsel who are not at the table feel a need to show that they're valuable. And since they didn't help make the deal, they're going to feel like they should show their value by killing the deal. So what do you do? Just start to ask questions at the table like who's affected by this? Uh, How are the people that are affected by this? by this going to react you're going to ask your, your who and how and what questions just to get them pulled into the process they don't have to come to the table but if they are made to feel like they're part of the process they're much less likely to kill the deal
0: yeah and you said the who how and what questions you deliberately didn't say the why questions
1: uh, Ah, yeah. great right? all right so uh, good job catching that the so why makes people feel accused. And the tiny little shift of what caused you to, why did you do that to what caused you to do that? Why makes people defensive in all situations globally, in all cultures. So change your whys to what. And you won't make people defensive, and you get
0: better answers. Another very, very subtle shift. And all this and more is available in this book. If you don't have it yet, I suggest you get it. It's available everywhere, right, Chris?
1: Yeah, it's available everywhere. You know, buy it on Amazon because it's the best price. I mean, I buy them on Amazon. I get a better deal there (laughs) than I do at Barnes & Noble.
0: There you go. So let me give you another situation. We're, We're sitting at the negotiating table, Somewhere along the way, how do you identify the person who's lying?
1: A couple different ways for lying. Um, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book is the Pinocchio effect. What's the Pinocchio effect? The more they talk, the more likely it is that they're lying. Somebody who's lying knows they're lying. And because they know that, they're going to work harder to convince you. And, you know, the the other way is true as well. Um, Honesty correlates with shorter answers. If if I'm telling you the truth and you're not smart enough to listen to it, I'm just going to think you're an idiot and my answers are going to get shorter and I'm going to actually get annoyed with you for not believing me because I know I'm telling the truth. If I'm lying, I'm going to be worried. I'm going to talk a lot more if if I'm lying to you.
0: Yeah, I think anybody who is a parent who's watching or listening probably has seen that behavior in their kids.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Right, uh, Chris. We have just a couple of moments here left in this first segment. But for the folks who are watching and listening who want to know more about you, how they can work with you in Black Swan, what's the best way for them to reach you?
1: You know, actually, subscribe to the newsletter. It's a text to sign up function. It's on the website. You send the number, uh, the the message FBI empathy, all one word, lowercase. Text it to the number twenty two eight twenty eight. That's two two eight twenty eight. You get a text back um, to sign up for the newsletter. It's the gateway to everything we have. I mean, first of all, it's a great newsletter. It's actionable. And it lets you know about every product that we put out there. We can help you in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, I can attest to that. The newsletter is fantastic. It is actionable advice, so definitely subscribe. Uh, Just to close out this first segment, Chris, we talked a lot about the the subtleties of, of shifting the way we think about a negotiation. How important is the observation of body language? What can that tell you as a negotiator?
1: Well, body language only tells you a change in thinking. You are looking for shifts. It's real easy uh, to misinterpret the shift, especially if you haven't gotten to know the person. Um, So what you want to do is simply be aware that body language is telling you something and you want to find out what it is. Typically, the simplest way is what we call a label. And you might say, if you see a body language shift, you might say, seems like something just occurred to you. It's a really innocuous way, and it's a great way to draw somebody out and get them to, get them to talk to you about what just went through their mind.
0: Gotcha. We're going to have to take a quick break here, Chris. Don't go anywhere, and for you watching and listening, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Chris Voss right after this quick commercial break.
1: Shelter dogs aren't broken. They've simply experienced more life, If they were human, we would call them wise. They would be the ones with tales to tell and stories to write. The ones dealt a bad hand who responded with courage. Do not pity a shelter dog, adopt one. Say we've got grit and we'll take it as a compliment because it's our uncommon drive, our spark within that brings us together and sets us apart. We are temple made. And when others take shortcuts, when others take breaks, when others take the easy way, we take charge.
0: welcome back to behind the numbers i'm dave bookbinder and today we're talking about how to negotiate like your life depended on it with chris voss who is the author of this book never split the difference he's also the ceo of the black swan group uh chris a lot of good stuff covered in the first segment we ended it on the topic of labeling but if you don't mind i'd like to just go a little bit deeper into labels because there's a a subtle power in saying to someone it seems like it feels like because it it's it's non-accusatory, and no one can say you're wrong, because when you say it feels like, that's judgmental. How can we use labeling in our negotiations?
1: We use labeling constantly. For, it's the MacGyver skill. It's just a verbalization of an, uh, of an observation. Um, it, the simplicity of it is deceptive, because it has this great effect on people. It sort of bypasses their defenses defenses, and triggers their thinking and gets that thinking out of their mouth. Um, and that's why to throw a label on a dynamic or an emotion is so powerful because you're going to get the other side talking in a much less guarded way. One of our clients likes to refer to labels as a tool that unlocks the floodgates of truth talk. So, the simple yeah. verbal observation, it seems like it sounds like it looks like, you'd be astonished at what you could call out. One of my favorites is. Uh, A guy's trying to get an appointment with the CEO. The secretary's actually blowing him off. And he just says, it feels like I'm getting blown off here. You know, you say it innocently, not an accusation, uh, just innocently. And the secretary was, in fact, blowing him off. And that was a game-changing moment for her because she felt like, I could pass this guy on to my boss because he seems trustworthy which is the feeling that you want to build into the conversations with the other person and and, and our client got the meeting with the ceo
0: yeah one of the things that uh, that i've used before is in, in talking with like a, for instance a customer service representative uh and you mentioned this in the book too where you say something to the effect of it seems like you're not able to do anything more and that subtle shift kind of inspires them to want to do more
1: yeah it actually does i mean uh, People, if they, can, if they can dig deeper, if they can find another option or another alternative, it really triggers their brain, the brainstorming that they have on their side. And, and more than likely, there is something else they could do.
0: Yeah. Let's talk a little psychology. And, and I want to talk about the psychology of risk avoidance, the idea about people thinking that it's more important to avoid a loss rather than to seek gains. How, how does that impact a negotiation?
1: Yeah, and I, you know, it wasn't me that made that up. That it's actually Danny Kahneman, Nobel Prize winner in 2002, pointing that out, that uh, people are, are much more likely to take a risk to avoid a loss than they are to accomplish a gain, and, which is the opposite, because business is all about pitch and gain, right? Yeah. Well, you go much farther by highlighting what the losses would be by inaction or the losses by a bad decision, which is why you need empathy, because it's so powerful you don't use tactical empathy first the other side feels taken hostage yeah so you know what about not doing something is going to cost them is more likely to spur them to action
0: interesting one of the big things that we see day-to-day in negotiations is this fear that as we're getting close to the finish line that we're going to leave something on the table that maybe we're not getting the best deal how do we walk away from the table and not feel like we left something on the table
1: well, uh, it's it's about how you got to the walkaway point. Um, w- one of the best skills that we teach we teach, and that uh, most people, uh, everybody makes a huge difference with, is being able to say, "How am I supposed to do that?" As a response to a counteroffer from the other side, uh, or any offer, um, it it drops empathy into the situation. The other side begins to show you empathy because the issue is not whether the answer the issue is what they had to think of to come up with the answer. And they take a much broader look at the situation when you ask that question and it kicks them into brainstorming mode. At some point in time, they're gonna say, if you want the deal, you'll do it. That's actually the perfect place to end up because that's when you know you didn't
0: leave anything on the table. Interesting, it's all very subtle. Uh, It requires a keen sense of awareness, right?
1: Yeah, which everybody can have with practice. Um, it's just a matter of getting in the practice, and your your awareness will actually come to you very quickly.
0: Yeah. Okay. One of the techniques that you talk about often is the use of mirrors. What's an example of how someone can use mirroring to their uh, advantage?
1: Yeah, it's it's nuts. Mirroring is not the body language mirror. The hostage negotiator's mirror is just repeating the last one to three-ish words of what somebody's just said and then occasionally maybe a selected one to three-ish words. Never more than five. It could be as few as one. And it just triggers something in the other side where they want to expand and go on. I mean, it's this great connector of thought. And, you know, there are some people who love mirrors so much, they go around all day long, that's all they do, and everybody they talk to opens up and reveals incredible amounts of information to
0: them. So it triggers something.
1: Uh, it triggers something. There you yes. go. So it, uh, is it fair, it is fair to point.
0: use it in that context where I go back to an earlier statement that you make and try and mirror something that wasn't necessarily the last thing you said?
1: Yeah, you can. I okay. mean, we, we taught it as off of the last three words just so people get their repetitions in and build the skill. But when you're really good, if somebody said something you want to go back to and you want to say, what did you mean by that? a better way is to go back and just mirror those words and it takes them right back there. And then they expand them.
0: Okay. Uh, Chris, there's a lot of folks who watch and listen to this program who are entrepreneurs uh, or have an entrepreneurial itch. And uh, we're saying off the air about your, your TED talk, you made a joke about what do you do if you're an FBI negotiator and now you're out of the FBI? Well, you write a book. Um, yeah. But you had a, a journey of entrepreneurship, as I like to call it. You're a CEO of a, of a successful business. You do a lot of public speaking. What Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was for you, that journey of entrepreneurship? Yeah,
1: well, um, first of all, you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. I mean, my team principally that I pulled in, for, first it was my son, Brandon, who's the president of my company. You know, we started pulling people in early on. And then, then shortly after that, you know, his now bride. My daughter-in-law is ridiculously organized. Neither he nor I nor are organized. So I started to assemble a team. And, you know, I took my time. Um, some people that I liked didn't work out. Uh, some people that I would trust did. And so the team got assembled. And, and then, then the triggering event, you know, the, the moonshot came. The 10X event came when, when we published the book. I mean, there's just nothing like publishing a book. Even a lot of my friends are self-published. There's a bona fides that comes with that publishing a book that shows that you, you've got expertise that you can display it shows you can finish a project. It's no small project getting a book published. There's just so many game-changing differences from publishing a book. Really, uh, once you've assembled your team, because then now your team is in a position to take advantage of the boost it's going to give you.
0: Yeah, so for folks who are watching and listening, Chris, if they want to either work with you, learn more about you and the organization, or how maybe they can get you to come speak at one of their events, what's the best way to contact you?
1: All right, so info at BlackSwanLTD.com, info at B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. That'll get triaged depending upon what you're after inside my company and sent to the right person, whether you want a keynote speech, which I do, whether you want corporate training, whether you're a top performer and you want individual training. We cater to the top performers, the 1%. And if your goal is, to, if you are the one percent, or your goal is to become the one percent, then we're your guys. There guys.
0: you go. So, Chris, a lot of us in our day to day are taught that the first impression is is what we really want to focus on. But I, I saw you do a keynote, and you drilled this into my head, where you say the last impression is the lasting impression. Why is that so important?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I said I said it a talk a long time ago Gallup. Uh, Gallup poll organization is sitting on a ton of data of human nature data, um, which makes sense because they've been polling people about their reactions for 8,000 years. And they said people don't remember things the way it happened. They remember the most intense moment and the way it ended. So the last impression is a lasting impression. You can get away with a mediocre first impression. You know, all the training we have on first impressions is really so We don't make a bad first impression. You can't get away with a mediocre last impression. Uh, If you want the relationship to continue, every interaction is going to be seeded by the previous interaction and how that previous interaction ended. So the last impression is the lasting impression is a rule of uh, a law of human nature that's just completely
0: unavoidable. What's a good way to make a great lasting impression?
1: Well, typically it would be Whatever you would say up front, just move it to the end. You know, if, if at the beginning of, the, of our interaction, I want to say to you, look, I hope we make a great deal. Um, I respect and admire you. And it's my goal that, that we have a relationship that lasts for 20 years. And every 10 years, we look back on how great the last 10 years has been. That might be what many people would say is a great opener. Yeah. Put it at the end. And even if you say it at the beginning, make sure you say it at the end because that's when it's really going to resonate with the other side.
0: The last impression is the lasting impression, for sure. We only have a couple of minutes to go here, Chris, unfortunately. But I want to delve into a little bit more psychology. Where, again, we are all taught, listen to understand. And then you go one step further and you say, but don't say, I understand. Right. Why is it so important that we don't say, I understand?
1: Well, I understand we've been conditioned Whenever we hear that, that's when somebody wants us to shut up. It's I uh, and they want to talk. I understand. We've been hit with a battered with it when somebody says, "I understand," but here's why you're wrong. Here's why I'm right. I mean, it's it's a battering that comes right after I understand. So it's not anybody's fault that doesn't make that mistake. You just have to live with all the people that did. So instead of saying I understand, just actually articulate what your understanding is in detail, in clarity, especially the negatives, to show that you understand, demonstrate your understanding, then there's no doubt in the other side's mind as to whether or not you do understand, plus you don't feel like they don't feel attacked because you, understand, you said, I understand, but here's how you're wrong.
0: Yeah. And I guess in a similar vein, I wanted to just ask you quickly about the, the response, you're right, um, and, and why you don't want to go there. <laughs> or, or, or When you hear that, what, what does that tell you?
1: Yeah, I got to tell you something. You know, it's a crazy thing we're all guilty of and we're all suckered by simultaneously. We love to hear somebody say, you're right to us, because it just makes us feel so good. And we say, you're right to somebody that we're tired of and we want them to get get them to stop talking. Like we want to preserve the relationship, but we have to. But we just can't take it anymore. So we look at him, we go, you're right. And they shut up and the crazy thing is as much as everybody does this we're completely blind to how often it's done to us to get us to shut up
0: yeah for sure chris i think we maybe have 60 or 90 seconds to go here i know they're going to pull on this in a moment here but i wanted to just ask you if you could share with the audience uh, a practical tip around and i'll give it to your choice in the day-to-day whether it's negotiating a salary a car negotiation a seat on an airplane what's the jedi mind trick that you'd recommend that we all keep in mind
1: yeah well you know first of all your tone of voice um should be curious or with regard for the other person you know your inner voice betrays your outer voice and if you're upset no matter what your words are they're going to feel it and it's going to knock them back So then just just right off the bat, uh, do a cold read, uh, take a look at them, read what you think is on their mind based on their body language or their face, and say, hey, looks like you're having a good day, and shut up. Or say, hey, tough day, and shut up. Make them feel seen, and it will immediately change the interaction because nobody else is
0: doing that to them. Great advice. And unfortunately, we are out of time, so we're going to stop right there. Chris, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on Behind the Numbers. We've been talking about how to negotiate as if your life depended on it with Chris Voss, and it's been a great time, a lot of great takeaways. If you haven't already subscribed to the newsletter that Chris recommended or or the book, make sure you get your hands on it. My name is Dave Bookbinder. If you want to learn more about me, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you enjoyed what you heard or saw here today, please do hit the subscribe button so that you can stay in contact with us. Thanks again, everyone. We'll see you next time on Behind the Numbers. Take care.